Chapter 40. Be Not Anxious. At verse 25, we start a new section in this consideration of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a subsection in reality of the major theme which is being considered in this sixth chapter, namely the Christian walking and living in this world in his relationship to the Father. There are two main aspects to be considered, what the Christian does in private and what he does in public. You see how practical this sermon is. It is far from being something remote and theoretical. It deals with the practicalities of the personal, private life. All I do, my life of prayer, my life of attempting to do good, my life of fasting, my personal devotion, the nurture and culture of my own spiritual life. But I do not spend the whole of my time in these occupations. That would be to become a monk or a hermit. I do not segregate myself, no. I live in the world and am engaged in business and in affairs and have these multitudes of problems pressing in upon me. Above everything else, our Lord reminds us in the second section, starting at verse 19, that the big problem that confronts us is that of worldliness, which is always there and always attacking us. That is the theme from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. But we have seen that it is divided into subsidiary sections. First of all, there is the section that we have already considered, consisting of verses 19 through 24. Here now, from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, we come to the second section. It is still the one theme, the danger of worldliness, the danger of mammon, the danger of being defeated by the mind, outlook, and life of this present world. There are perhaps two main ways of looking at the difference between verses 19 through 24 and this section. One way is to say that in the previous subdivision, our Lord was chiefly emphasizing the danger of laying up treasures upon earth, hoarding them, amassing them, living to do that. Here, he is concerned not so much with our laying them up as with our worrying about them, being anxious concerning them. And of course, the two things are different. There are many people who may not be guilty of laying up treasures upon earth, but who nevertheless can be very guilty of worldliness because they are always thinking about these things, being anxious about them, and dwelling upon them constantly. That is the main difference between these two subsections. But it can be put in another way. Some people say that in verses 19 through 24, our Lord was chiefly addressing rich people, people who are well off in this world's goods, and who therefore are in a position to lay them up and to amass them. But they suggest that from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, he is thinking more of people who are either actually poor or else those who cannot be described as rich, those who just manage to make both ends meet, those who are face-to-face -face with the problems of making a living and keeping things going in a material sense. To these people, the main danger is not the danger of laying up treasures or worshiping treasures in some shape or form, but the danger of being burdened by these things and being anxious about them. It does not really matter which interpretation you take. Both are true, for it is possible for a man who is really wealthy to be worried and burdened by these worldly matters, so we need not press the antithesis between rich and poor. The great thing is to concentrate on this danger of being oppressed and obsessed by the things that are seen, the things that belong to time and to this world alone. Here we are reminded once more of the terrible subtlety of Satan and of sin. It does not matter very much to Satan what form sin takes as long as he succeeds in his ultimate objective. 
It is immaterial to him whether you are laying up treasures on earth or worrying about earthly things. All he is concerned about is that your mind should be on them and not on God. And he will assail and attack you from every direction. You may think you have won this great battle against Satan because you conquered him when he came in at the front door and talked to you about laying up treasures on earth. But before you are aware of it, you will find he has come in through the back door and is causing you to have anxious concern about these things. He is still making you look at them, and so is perfectly content. He can transform himself into an angel of light. There is no end to the variety of his methods. His one concern is that we should keep our minds on these things instead of centering them upon God and holding them there. But, fortunately for us, We are led by one who knows him and his methods, and if we can say with St. Paul that we are not ignorant of his devices, it is because we have been taught and instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How subtle was the devil's threefold temptation of him in the wilderness! If thou be the Son of God! We are subject to similar attacks, but thank God our Lord has instructed us concerning it here and his teaching is given in a very plain and explicit manner. Our Lord continues his warning. He takes nothing for granted. He knows how frail we are. He knows the power of Satan and all his horrible subtlety. So he comes down to details. Again, we shall see here, as we saw in the previous section, that he is not content merely to lay down principles or to give a command or injunction. He provides us with arguments and gives us reasons. He puts it to our common sense. We are reminded again that he puts the truth to our minds. He is not concerned to produce a certain emotional atmosphere only. He reasons with us. That is the great thing we need to grasp. So he again starts with a therefore. Therefore, I say unto you. He is carrying on the main argument but he is going to put it in a slightly different manner. The theme, of course, is still this, the need of the single eye, the need of looking centrally at the one thing. You find him repeating it, seek ye first. That is just another way of saying that you must have the single eye and serve God and not mammon. At all costs, we must do this. He therefore puts it three times over, introducing it by means of the word, therefore, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Then in verse 31 he says it again, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Then in verse 34 he says it again, Finally, take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There was never a teacher in this world like Lord Jesus Christ. The great art of teaching is the art of repetition. The true teacher always knows that it is not enough to say a thing once, but that it needs to be repeated. So he says it three times, but each time in a slightly different form. His method is particularly interesting and fascinating, and as we proceed to consider it, we shall see exactly what it is. The first thing we must do is to consider the terms which he uses, and particularly this expression, take no thought, 
which people have often misunderstood and over which many have tripped and stumbled. The authorized version puts it like this, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat. And it goes on repeating that expression. But of course, the real meaning of take no thought has changed since this authorized version was introduced in 1611. If you consult the authorities, you'll find that they give quotations from Shakespeare to show that taking thought was then used in the sense of being anxious or tending to worry. So that the real translation at this point should be, be not anxious, or have no anxiety, or if you prefer it, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink. That is the real meaning of the word. Indeed, the actual word that was used by our Lord is a very interesting one. It is the word used to indicate something which divides, separates, or distracts us, a word used very frequently in the New Testament. If you turn to Luke 12:29, a corresponding passage to this, you will find that the expression used there is neither be ye of doubtful mind. It is a mind which is divided into sections and compartments and which is not functioning as a whole. We cannot do better, therefore, than say that it is not a single eye. There is a kind of double vision, a looking in two directions at one and the same time, and therefore not really seeing anything. That is what it means to be anxious, to be worried, to be taking thought in this sense. A still better illustration of the meaning of the term is to be found in the story of Martha and Mary when our Lord was in their house, Luke 10:38-42. Our Lord turned to Martha and rebuked her. He said, Thou art careful and troubled about many things. Poor Martha was distracted. That is the real meaning of the expression. She did not know where she was, nor what she really wanted. Mary, on the other hand, had a single purpose, a single aim. She was not distracted by many things. What our Lord is warning us against, therefore, is the danger of thus being distracted from the main objective in life by care, by this anxiety about earthly, worldly things. By looking so much at them that we do not look at God, this danger of living the double life, this false view, this dualism, that is what he is concerned about. Perhaps it is important to put in the negative at this point. Our Lord is not teaching us here that we must not think about these things at all. Taking no thought does not mean that. Many times in the history of the church there have been zealous, misguided people who have taken this literally and have felt that to live the life of faith, they must not think about the future in any sense. They must make no provision at all. They just live by faith. They just pray to God and do nothing about it. That is not the meaning of take no thought. Quite apart from the exact meaning of these words, the context alone, surely, and the plain teaching of the New Testament elsewhere should have saved them from that error. A knowledge of the exact meaning of the words in the Greek is not the sole essential to true interpretation. If you read the scriptures and if you watch the context, you should be safeguarded from these errors. Surely the context here, the very illustration that our Lord uses, proves that these people must be wrong. He takes the argument of the birds of the air. It is not true to say that they just have to perch themselves upon the trees or upon a pole and wait until food is mechanically brought to them. That is not true. They search for it busily. 
There is real activity in the fowls of the air, so that the very argument our Lord uses at this point entirely precludes the possibility of interpreting it as a kind of passive waiting upon God and doing nothing. Our Lord never condemns farmers for plowing and harrowing and sowing and reaping and gathering into barns. He never condemns that, for it was God's command that man should live in that way, by the sweat of his brow. So these arguments put in the form of illustrations and including also that of the lilies of the field, how they draw their sustenance from the earth in which they are planted, taken especially in the light of the teaching of the Bible everywhere, should have saved men from this ridiculous misinterpretation. The Apostle Paul put it very explicitly in his second letter to the Thessalonians, where he says that, If a man would not work, neither should he eat. There were people then, misguided and somewhat fanatical, who said, The Lord is going to return at any moment. Therefore, we must not work. We must spend our time waiting for His return. So they ceased to work and imagined they were being exceptionally spiritual. And that is Paul's iconic remark respecting them. If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. There are certain fundamental principles governing life, and that is one of them. We find an exposition of this commandment in that great saying of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where he says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Or if you like, do not be careful, do not be full of care about anything. Again, that is not an injunction to idleness. It is a warning against care and anxiety this tendency to worry that so constantly afflicts us in this life. There can be no question at all about the real danger of this whole matter. The moment we stop to consider and examine ourselves, we shall find that we are not only open to this danger, but that we have often succumbed to it. Nothing seems to be more natural to mankind in this world than to become anxious, to become burdened and worried. It is the peculiar temptation, some would say, of women, especially of those who are responsible for the care of the home. But it is not by any means confined to them. The danger confronting the husband or father or anyone who has responsibility towards loved ones and other people in a world like this is to spend the whole of life oppressed by these things and weighed down by them. They tend to master and control us, and we go through life enslaved by them. That is the thing with which our Lord is concerned, and he is so concerned about it that he repeats this warning three times over. First, we shall look at his argument in a very general manner. Let us paraphrase what he actually says. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Here again, he starts with a general statement and injunction, as he did in the previous section. There, he began by laying down a law and then proceeded to give us reasons for keeping it. It is exactly the same here. There is the general statement, We are not to be anxious or worried about what we shall eat or what we shall drink, nor yet for our body what we shall put on. That, of course, is as comprehensive as anything can be. He is dealing with our life, our existence, our being in this body in which we live. Here we are, distinct personalities. We have this gift of life, and we live our life in this world and through our bodies. So that when our Lord considers our life and our bodies, He is, as it were, 
considering our essential personality and our life in this world. He puts it broadly. It is comprehensive and it includes the whole of man. He maintains that we must never be anxious either about our lives as such or about the clothing of our bodies. It is as fully comprehensive as that. And it is very important that we should realize that because this is a very thoroughgoing injunction. It does not apply only to certain aspects of our life. It takes in the whole of life, our health, our strength, our success, what is going to happen to us, that which is our life in any shape or form. And equally, it takes the body as a whole and tells us that we must not be anxious about our clothing or any of these things that are part and parcel of our life in this world. Having given the commandment, he then gives us a general reason for observing it, and, as we shall see, having done this, he proceeds to subdivide it and to give particular reasons under two headings. But he starts with the general reason in these words, Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? That takes in the life and the body. Then he subdivides it and takes the life and gives his argument. Then he takes the body and gives his argument. But let us first look at the form of the general argument, which is very striking and important. The logicians would tell us that the argument he uses is one based upon a deduction from the greater to the lesser. He says, in effect, wait a minute, consider this before you become anxious. Is not your life more than meat, the sustenance, the food? Is not the body itself more important and greater than the raiment? What does our Lord mean by this? The argument is a very profound and powerful one, and how prone we are to forget it. He says, in effect, take this life of yours about which you are tending to worry and become anxious. How have you got it? Where has it come from? And the answer, of course, is that it is a gift of God. Man does not create life. Man does not give being to himself. Not one of us ever decided to come into this world. And the very fact that we are alive at this moment is entirely because God willed and God decided it. Life itself is a gift, a gift from God. So the argument which our Lord uses is this. If God has given you the gift of life, the greater gift, do you think he is now suddenly going to deny himself and his own methods and not see to it that that life is sustained and enabled to continue? God has his own ways of doing that, but the argument is that I need never become anxious about it. Of course I am to plow and sow and reap and gather into barns. I am to do the things that God has ordained for man in life in this world. I must go to work and earn money and so on. But all he says is that I need never be concerned or worried or anxious that suddenly there will not be sufficient to keep this life of mine going. That will never happen to me. It is impossible. If God has given me the gift of life, he will see to it that that life is kept going. But this is the point. He is not arguing as to how this will be done. He is just saying that it will be. I commend to your study as a matter of great interest and vital importance the frequency with which that argument is used in the scriptures. We have a perfect illustration of it in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It is a very common biblical argument, the argument from the greater to the lesser, 
and we must always be watching for it and applying it. The giver of the gift of life will see that the sustenance and support of that life will be provided. We must not stay now to take the argument from the birds of the air, but that is exactly what God does with them. They have to find their food, but it is He who provides it for them. He sees that it is there for them. Exactly the same, of course, applies to the body. The body is a gift from God, and therefore we can be quite happy and certain in our minds that He will somehow or other provide the means whereby these bodies of ours can be covered and clothed. Here we come to one of His great principles, one of the great central principles of the Bible. There is nothing of which this modern generation needs to be reminded so much as just this. The main trouble with most of us is that we have forgotten first principles, and especially this vital one that the things we enjoy in this life are the gift of God. For instance, how often do we thank God for the gift of life itself? We tend to think that with our scientific knowledge we can understand the whole origin and essence of life. So we think of these things in terms of natural causes and inevitable processes. Quite apart, however, from the fact that all such theories are nothing but theories which cannot be proved and are lacking at the most vital point, how tragic they are in the lack of understanding of biblical teaching which they reveal. Where does life come from? Read your modern scientists on the origin of life and you'll find that they cannot explain it. They cannot bridge the gulf from the inorganic to the organic. They have their theories, but they are nothing more than this, and even so they disagree amongst themselves. That, however, is the fundamental problem. Where has this principle called life come from? What is its origin? If you say it started with the inorganic somehow becoming organic, I ask, where did the inorganic come from? You are bound to go back to the life principle. And there is only one satisfactory answer. God is the giver of life. But we must not take this in just a general way. Our Lord was particularly interested in our individual case and condition. And what He is really teaching us here is that it is God who has given us the gift of life and being and existence. It is a tremendous conception. We are not merely individuals thrown up or thrown out by an evolutionary process. God is concerned about us one by one. We should never have come into this world if God had not willed it. We must take a firm hold and grasp of this great principle. There should never be a day in our lives when we fail to thank God for the gift of life and food and existence and the marvel and the wonder of the body that He has given us. These things are solely and entirely His gift. And, of course, if we fail to realize that, we shall fail everywhere. It may be well for us at this point to stop and meditate upon this great principle before going on to our Lord's subsidiary argument. He sums up his central teaching in these words, O ye of little faith. Faith there, as we shall see, does not mean some vague principle. He has in mind our failure to understand, our lack of comprehension of the biblical view of man and of life as it is to be lived in this world. That is the real trouble with us and our Lord's purpose in giving the illustrations which we shall consider later is to show us how we fail to think as we ought. He asks, How is it that you do not see inevitably that this must be true? 
And of all things I have mentioned, which we fail to grasp and to understand truly, this preliminary fundamental point about the nature and being of man himself is most important. Here it is in all its simplicity. It is God himself who gives us life and the body in which we live it. And if he has done that, we can draw this deduction, that his purpose with respect to us will be fulfilled. God never leaves unfinished any work he has begun. Whatever he starts, whatever he has purposed, he will most surely fulfill. And therefore we come back to this, that there is a plan for every life in the mind of God. We must never regard our lives in this world as accidental. No. Are there not twelve hours in the day, Christ said one day to his timorous and frightened disciples. And we need to say that to ourselves. We can be certain that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives, and it will be carried out. So we must never be anxious about our life and about its sustenance and its support. We must not be anxious if we find ourselves in a storm at sea or in an aeroplane and things seem to be going wrong, or if in a railway train we suddenly remember that there was an accident on that line the previous week. That sort of thing is abolished if we really get this right view about life itself and the body as gifts of God. They are from Him and are given by Him. He does not just start a process like that and then allow it to continue anyhow, somehow. No. Once He starts it, He keeps it going. God who decreed all things at the beginning is carrying them out. And God's purpose for mankind and God's purpose for the individual are certain and always sure. We cannot do better than remind ourselves again of something we have already mentioned, and that is the faith of God's people throughout the centuries. That is the faith in teaching to be found, for example, in the hymns of Philip Doddridge. A typical example is found in his great hymn, O God of Bethel, by whose hand thy people still are fed, who through this weary pilgrimage hast all our fathers led. That is his great argument, based ultimately upon the sovereignty of God, that God is the ruler of the universe, and we are known to him one by one, and are in a personal relationship to him. It was the faith of all the great heroes of the faith described in Hebrews 11. That is what kept those men going. Quite frequently, they did not understand, but they said, God knows and God undertakes. They had this final confidence that he who had brought them into being and who had a purpose for them would not leave them nor forsake them. He would surely sustain and lead them all the journey through until their purpose in this world had been completed and he would receive them into their heavenly habitation where they would spend their eternity in his glorious presence. Be not anxious about your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor about your body, wherewithal it shall be clothed. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Argue it out. Start with first principles and draw the inevitable deduction. The moment you do so, care and worry and anxiety will vanish. And as a child of your Heavenly Father, you will walk with peace and serenity in the direction of your everlasting home.